0: Well, we've looked at the exegetical portion of the fall, Genesis 3, put that in some detail, and we also drew the major implications, which are very, very far-reaching, hope you saw. And now we want to look at the fall in terms of apologetics, and the area that needs explanation or defending or a defense for is this whole issue or problem of evil. And it's only the biblical worldview, as we've already seen, so some of the things that we've already talked about, we'll reiterate and put it together in a defense. And on your outline sheet, I have the essence of the biblical answer there, after I give you a little bit of a background in terms of the problem, etc. So, let me give you, first of all, an introduction, and then we'll get to the biblical answer in due time. So first of all, a couple of quotes here. A quote from a man by the name of George Buckner. Uh, why do I suffer? That's a question we all have. So he says, why do I suffer? This is the rock of atheism. And what he's getting at here is the atheist uses the issue of suffering and evil to argue against the idea of a god. God or God himself, the God of the Bible. So that's why we want to answer this, what's the deal with evil? So we'll formulate the problem in more detail, but this kind of gives the essence of it in a few words here. Gordon Graham says, the existence of evil, both moral and natural, and I'll talk about these two aspects of evil, moral and natural, Forms the basis for one of the oldest and most persistently troubling arguments against Judeo-Christianity. You'll see. We'll get to it. We'll explain it. But this is an accurate statement. The existence of evil, both moral and natural, forms the basis for one of the oldest and most persistently troubling arguments against Judeo-Christianity. Types of evil. <laughs> You guys are crazy. <laughs> Types of evil. There is what's called natural evil does not involve choices of moral agents. And when we speak of uh, natural evil, what are we speaking of? Yeah, hurricanes, tornadoes, pestilence, floods. Droughts, avalanches, meteors striking the earth, lightning bolts, windstorms, radon leaks, worms, <laughs> mosquitoes, piranha. Those are natural. It does not involve choices of moral agents. Now what's the source of these natural types of evil? The source would be Genesis three, the curse. Yeah, the curse. And there's also what we would describe as moral evil, and this is what we're more concerned about, is moral evil, this trace to the choices and actions of moral agents. And I phrase it moral agents because it's more than human. It's more than just men, generically. What is it? You answered it. Angelic, yeah. So it includes angels as moral agents as well, moral Two, two sources, two types. Now this whole area is important for a few reasons. First of all, we already said this constitutes what the atheist would say a proof of either no God or a God that is less than what is described in the Bible. And by less than what is described in the Bible, if there's a God then if he's a good God, why would he permit evil? And if he permits evil, then maybe he's not so good. He's a malevolent God. Or is he a powerful God? If he's so powerful, then why doesn't he prevent evil? If he doesn't prevent evil, well, maybe he's not so powerful. See the arguments? So it's important to answer the supposed proof of the atheist, and that's what we want to do. Another reason it's important, it's universal... Everyone is affected. All of us suffer to some extent, some more than others, obviously. And all have suffered throughout history, since Adam and Eve. There's been none that have been immune from suffering as a result of evil. Thirdly, it's reality. It exists. And the issue is, is there a design behind it? In other words, is there a sovereign God who knows what he's doing and has it under his sovereign control? Is that true? Or, as naturalism says, it just exists. Grow up, cope with it. So it's there. Now, there are some that deny it. Gnosticism tended to deny the existence of evil. Who today denies the existence of suffering and evil? To some extent, New Age, to some extent, but there's a specific specific uh, religious group. you ever heard of Mary Baker Eddy? It's an it's illusion, science. Christian science. Yeah, but it is a reality, so it's important. Fourthly, just on the practical level, I think this apologetic will help us in dealing, because we all suffer, so it will help us to understand it and respond to it rightly. So it is important. We don't want to ignore it. So we want to understand it. So that's your little introduction. So here's the problem. And theologians have formulated it in different ways, but problem in terms of who God is. First of all, if God, and I've already alluded to it, if God is all good and he could will good and he does will good, why does evil exist? If God is all good, and he desires good, is there something wrong with God? Secondly, if God is omnipotent, and God does his will, then why doesn't he exercise his will and his power to prevent suffering and evil? And the reality is, evil does exist, so the atheist takes the the, the existence of evil and argues that God must not be omnipotent, or God is uncaring and does not exercise His will against it, or God is not all that good such that He does not will good to overshadow evil. And he points to holocausts and mass murder and plagues of the past and all these things, wars and all the things that man does to himself. So that's something of the problem. Number four, the conclusion, God does not exist, or he's not all good, or he's not omnipotent, or both. And when I say both, all three, I guess. That's the problem. That's the problem of evil in terms of answering the issue that the atheist raises. And you might even include God doesn't care. God's not a caring God. See the problem? So when they throw that in your face, how do you answer them? Well, that's what we want to do: try to answer them. And I've already somewhat alluded to the views in general in our culture. The unbelieving world views of our culture: evil is just random, just exists, just happens. Men are involved, but it's just there. Remember, it's not bounded. It's just what is. It's just what exists. More specifically, naturalism actually turns it and distorts it, turns it totally around. If there's no suffering and no death, then you can't have the survival of the fittest. There's no survival of the fittest. And if there's no survival of the fittest, according to the naturalists, then there's no what? Then there's no evolution. And if there's no evolution, then there's no what? No progress, no upward movement. And therefore, the conclusion that the naturalist has to conclude, the conclusion is evil must be good. Because <laughs> evil produces the survival of the fittest that moves evolution to this progression such that you have a movement to higher and higher organi- organization. First bullet there, no suffering and death. Where did that come from was that? Premise
1: of that? Well, it just exists, it, but if there's no
0: suffering in it... De- in other words, it just it exists. exists. Yeah, there is suffering. It just exists. And if there weren't, then uh, there'd be no survival of fittest, and there'd be no el- evolution, there'd be no progress. Okay? Now, that's a false concept. And I just mentioned uh, there are some that deny that it even exists, that it's an illusion in uh, the first century, Gnosticism to some extent, New Age to some extent today, and Christian science to some extent today. But they are a very, very small minority and always have been in, in history. Thirdly, biblical view is that evil and suffering is abnormal. It's not the way God created all things. He created all things very good. Something went wrong, and that's key. We'll get to that. And what we will expound is the biblical view. So that's the problem. Men have proposed different solutions to the problem. The atheist, what he has proposed is he uses it to deny God. The naturalist also denies God. The polytheist limits God. Dualism diminishes God. Gnosticism distorts and denies God. Pantheism diminishes God as well. So all of these solutions fail. None of them have hope. None of them have a resolution to the problem of evil. Because it just exists. So you can't change it. You can't remove it. None of them have a solution. So There's no solution in any of the other worldviews. It's only the biblical worldview that you have a solution. And that's what we want to expound next. So before I give you the resolution, let's kind of clarify some concepts here before we get any further. Evil, first of all, it's not a person, it's not a thing, it's not a substance, but it involves choices. It involves the will, it involves our volition that end in a wrong relationship. That's what the essence of evil is. So it's a rebellious heart. It's what evil is. Remember, Satan had no material existence. But he became the embodiment of evil by rebelling against God. His choice produced evil. So keep that in mind. It's not a thing. It's not a creature. It's not a being. It's not Satan himself. It's choices that result in the relationship or broken relationship be- between man and God or angelic creatures and God. Another clarification. People speak of free will. I don't like to refer to our volition as free will. The only ones with free will were Adam and Eve and one other. Who's the one other? Jesus Christ. Because he had no sin. Jesus, and, and obviously God's, only God, his will is free. Because of sin, we no longer have free will. I like what Luther described when he said that man's will is in bondage, is the word that he used. Because of the sin nature, our will is always affected by sin. So we cannot really say that it's free. Now, we have volition, and we are responsible for those choices. But those choices are always tainted by sin, and those choices always are damaging to the relationship to God. It's only what God has done to restore our will to be able to respond in obedience. So let's clarify that. Another thing, in terms of creation, the creation also is cursed. And as a result of that curse, we see expressions of evil even in the created realm. We talked about as natural. And God uses the creation to, in some ways, discipline and punish man's life. And fourthly, goodness only comes from God. It doesn't come from us. Any goodness in us first comes from him. And it's more than kindness. So God, being sovereign over the creation, has allowed evil, but he has a bigger plan, and in his goodness, he's going to effect that plan such that he's going to use evil. And I'm going to show you that as well. A few biblical insights. Here's the answer. Here's the answer to the issue and problem of of sin. Okay, number one. We always start with God. God is the creator of all, and he is sovereign over all. God is sovereign over all, and that means that somehow evil fits in with that sovereign plan of God. God is not caught off guard. God is not surprised by Adam and Eve's sin, God was not thrown off course with the fallenness of Satan. Evil and sin are part of God's overall sovereign plan. That's a starting point. Another point here is without God being author of it, God is not the source and author of it, but he is sovereign over it. That's very, very important.
1: Now, of course, going back to free will, we no longer have free will. So when we screw up is that just... My not to
0: do it. That's volition. That's choice, yes. But what I'm saying is we don't have the freedom to... In other words, we don't, all of those choices are always affected by sin. Whether they're
1: good
0: or bad? Even good ones, yeah.
1: Really?
0: hmm Yes. Yipes. Yipes. <laughs> exactly. So number one in our biblical insights, and we have to kind of put this whole package together to be able to give an answer. And most people won't listen to all of this. But if you understand it, then you're in a position to be able to help people. And it's you're in a position to help yourself as well. And particularly to help other believers in coping and understanding what God is doing. So this is kind of the biblical answer here. Secondly, God created moral agents. And moral agents with volition or with the ability to choose... And to have true volition, these moral agents have the choice to reject God and raise their fist up to God. God created creatures with that ability. Moral agents with volition. And those that are created in the image of God, that's part of who God is. God has volition, and we are created with volition. And apparently some angelic creatures... God gave the ability and the volition to choose to reject Him, and others it appears He did not give that ability.
1: Um, I've heard it said angelology. I guess I'm it's- It'd be
0: angelology.
1: I've heard it said that once the decision was made, it was locked in.
0: Locked in. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, yep. So that's what an- I mean, that's what seems to be biblical angelology.
1: The ones that weren't given a choice, are, is that like a difference between cherubim, seraphim?
0: And... The Bible doesn't tell us what choices they had, and perhaps if they were given that choice, they chose to worship rather than rebel. Yeah, Bible's silent on that one. He could have, had he so desired, created moral beings without that choice, without volition, without the ability to choose evil. And it's possible that some of the angels would be examples of moral agents that either made a choice, or if they did not have a choice, they were preserved in a state of holiness, and others were permitted to choose evil. But And Jesus Christ, you put him in that category. Jesus was a moral agent without choosing evil. Thirdly, we do know from Scripture moral agents choose evil have chosen evil. Thus, the fall of Satan and the demonic world, and thus the fall of man. We just studied that. Adam and Eve had the ability to choose to reject what God said. Thus, the fall. Number four, well, before that, uh, we mentioned the origin of evil is we're not on earth, but heaven, angelic creatures, or at least one, and then later others. And in terms of mankind, sin came to earth via the first man and woman. And both are held responsible. The natural realm, number four, the natural realm is affected by the fall of man and affected by evil. Most striking example is the second law of thermodynamics that we've described. Number five, God is not the author of evil. The Bible describes him as holy, separate from evil. Job 34.10 says, Therefore listen to me, you men of understanding, far be it from God to do wickedness, and from the Almighty uh, to do wrong. God is not the author of evil. Now, you have to stress this and make this crystal clear, because this is at the heart of the atheist argument. Evil doesn't come from God. He has a tendency of blaming God for evil if God exists. And there's many passages. We, we read the Revelation uh, 4, what was it, 8 passage, I can't remember, that comes from Isaiah 6.3, which is, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Just a handful of passages. Isaiah 57.15 For thus says the High and Exalted One who lives forever, whose name is holy, and then it quotes him, I dwell on high and holy place. A high and holy place. So he dwells in a holy place. He is holy. His name is holy. And remember, a name stands for what? A name stands for the whole person. It's not a label. So his name as holy means the whole person of God is holy. Isaiah forty forty five: To whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal? In other words, God God is like nothing else. And then the last part of that Isaiah 40, 25, says the Holy One. Forty twenty five. Psalm 111, verse 9. Holy and awesome is his name. Again, the name. One passage in the New Testament, First John 1, 5. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So God is not the author of evil. He is a holy God. Well, that's why we have to stress... Over and over and over, this is the biblical worldview. This is what the Bible teaches concerning God. Yeah. The description by theologian, totally separate from evil in his person and dealings with men, and includes his absolute righteousness. He's the standard. In other words, it's measured against himself as an absolute standard. Holiness means he is morally perfect, he is separate from all that is common or unclean. That's what God's holiness entails. And we read the Isaiah six three passage. Number six, not only is God holy, but God is all-powerful. Remember at the heart of the atheist claim is if God were all-powerful, then why does he not prevent evil? Well, the Bible also equally teaches that God is omnipotent. Description of omnipotence has the idea of infinite power to do anything which he wills. Infinite power. He can do anything consistent with his nature. And what is his nature? Holiness. Anything consistent with his nature. Potential and actual with no effort. No effort, no sweat. Infinite power. A couple of passages, Psalm sixty two, eleven. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. All power in the universe stems from an omnipotent God. Because power belongs to God. You remember when we talked about the image of God, he has given to us limited power limited volition to make choices, limited ability to exercise power, to be able to subdue and to rule the earth. But all power belongs to Him and comes from Him. So He's omnipotent. Just one other verse, Psalm 115.3. This is what every kid wish, wishes he could do, but only God can do it. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. your kids want to do that? <laughs> You want to do that, too. But it's God that is the only one that he does whatever he pleases. That's omnipotence.
1: The reality is that what is Him is good. He is
0: not. Right. So. Very good. Number seven. Not only is God holy and not the author of evil, not only is he all-powerful, or we call that omnipotence, but he is also all-good. And His goodness is absolute. You could also include infinite. And what was the first thing that was questioned concerning God in the temptation? Do you remember? The goodness of God. Did God really say that you can eat from all of the trees? Indeed, God is all good. A description of the goodness of God, He deals bountifully, tenderly, and kindly with all His creatures. And that includes the unbeliever. The unbeliever experiences common grace. He receives good gifts, James says in 119. So he deals bountifully and tenderly and kindly with all his creatures, including angelic creatures. He is the source of all in the universe that is good. As Connie said, goodness does not come from us. He is the source of all good. That was the first perfection that was attacked. I mentioned that. And there's many verses, just a handful of them. Psalm 145.9 The Lord is good to all. He summarized that up here. And His mercies are over all His works. So everything that He does is motivated from goodness. Psalm 25.8 Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Even sinners receive the goodness. Psalm 135.3 Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it, his name, is lovely. In a good New Testament passage, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And he means absolutely good. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's the epitome of goodness. His word is good. His will is good. All of his works are good because his nature is good. Number eight. God is a designer of all things and he has a purpose behind that design. We've been mentioning over and over world history Is God working out those purposes? So this tells us that God must have a design and he must have a purpose for evil. must fit into that plan. And we're not going to have time, our time is short here, but next week we will begin by giving you something of that plan and I'm going to give a lot of passages that support this idea that there's a plan behind it. And what God is doing in this design is basically displaying His glory. God is displaying His glory. That is an interesting galaxy. Yes. So when they say out
1: of everything that comes out something good, would you say that kind of describes
0: evil? Yeah. yeah, it, yeah, that's kind of a secular way of putting it. In other words, there's a more biblical way that we'll express it. Yeah, it's kind of a wishful thinking way of expressing it. We'll express it better. What I want to do is give you kind of how does God display his glory through evil. And I think that's the bottom line. God is going to use evil to display his glory. Let me give you some passages that you can look up in the meantime, since we don't have time, and you can read them on your own, and then next week I'll give them to you, and you will read them, and we'll expound them. Look up John 9, 1 through 5, and there's some others that we'll look up, but let me look up Romans nine twelve through 18. That's an interesting one. Actually, not include all the way to 22, Romans 9 through 22. And you can read the first two chapters of Job. We'll look at them as well. All of these give us insight to this problem of evil. Let me just summarize here. I'll remind you of all of these, but we'll focus on this one next time, the number eight. But the answer to the problem of evil cannot be answered simply. I think you have to kind of build a case. And what I've tried to outline here is the case in terms of giving an answer to the problem of evil. And that case, number one, it starts with God as creator of all things and he's sovereign over all that he's created. Sovereign over the universe. He created agents, moral agents with volition. These moral agents in time fell, or at least man fell in time. The natural realm is affected by that fall. So we have to deal with the natural realm in dealing with evil. God is not the author of evil, that's kind of the heart of it all. He's holy, God is all-powerful, we call that omnipotent. God is all-good, and He's good in an absolute sense. We're good in a relative sense, only as we express His goodness. And God has a design or a purpose. And we'll have a number nine, but we have to develop this one first. Well, this is our sixth session, so... Moving right along. You might not think so since we're only finishing up the second major event, but the others won't be as long as these first ones. We have to lay a good foundation and then we can proceed to build on that foundation. And what, uh, what we want, want to do today is I'm going to focus on the third major event, which is the Genesis flood, and we won't complete that this time. I still have to complete what we finished off with last time. We're going to look at the apologetic portion on the fall and the major issue that needs defending. We could add just the historicity of all of these events, the historicity of the creation event, the historicity of the fall, the historicity of the flood, because all of these are contested historically. Now, what I'm going to do is primarily do a lot of that when we talk about the flood, and some of the same things would be applicable in terms of creation and fall as well. So, last time we focused on the fall, and the major implications were the nature of evil. And we said the nature of evil, evil is not a thing, not a person, but it is rebellious. It's an attitude. Rebellious autonomy, in other words, a an attitude that leaves God out that's evil. Or an attitude that does everything without regard to what God may think or what God has revealed, and that's the nature of evil. So it's more in terms of a relationship. When we talked about the fall, we said the unbelieving worldview in terms of evil, evil the unbelieving world is just what is, what just exists. It always has existed in the mind of the secularist or anyone outside of a biblical worldview. So it goes on. This line represents uh, kind of paralleling our timeline. It just goes from infinity in the past to infinity in the future. It just is what is. It always has existed. It always will exist. Good and evil just exist side by side. That's the non-biblical worldview. But the main point that we said about evil, and one that is not commonly referred to, and I forgot to to credit Charlie Clough for this. He, He makes a big point in terms of evil being bounded, and I've just modified a chart that he has, so this primarily comes from him. But it is true, and once you think about it, you can see it. The idea of evil being bounded means that it has a beginning. It didn't always exist. The world was created very good, which is totally different from any other worldview. The creation was very good. And that's the divine evaluation. So evil is bounded in the sense that it has a beginning, and it is bounded in terms of the other end as well. But before we get to that, it's only the biblical worldview that uh, we have someone outside of the creation that deals with evil that is not evil, and is not the origin of evil. And that's God himself. God deals with evil, and he deals with it through time. In fact, every judgment of the Bible is God dealing with evil, which ultimately, God will deal with evil, or dealt with evil, on the cross, when sin and evil were judged, in an ultimate and in a final way. Now, Evil was not removed, we anticipate in the future that evil will be removed from all of that that God has preserved or saved or restored, however you want to phrase it, and that's what we mean by evil being bounded. So at the end, the Bible speaks of evil being confined in the lake of fire, and that's what we mean by evil being bounded. Make sense? Every other worldview does not see an end, does not have any solution to evil. It's only the biblical worldview where God is the one that deals with it. And he's dealt with it in the past, and he continues to deal with it. He deals with it on an individual basis. That's part of what the Christian life is all about, is conforming more and more to the image of Christ, which means we have to move away and away from evil. That's what holiness is all about. Make sense? So that was the major issue we looked at in terms of the fall, in terms of its nature. That's perhaps the most significant aspect on the nature of evil. We saw that the fall had radical effects on not only man, and not only spiritually, but it had radical effects on nature itself. And I tried to draw that from the passage itself to show that the world before the fall was radically different than the world after the fall. But the fall, radical effects on both man and nature. And also, in the midst of that, we we need to think in terms of what God's going to do in the future. But I'll get to that on another thing here. So, in terms of sin, in terms of evil, we have to also understand the nature of justice. What does justice mean? And justice is defined by Scripture, defined by God himself. He's the standard. He is righteous. He's the absolute standard for justice. So we gave you a foundation for justice, and there's always hope in the biblical worldview, so God is going to resolve the issue of evil and the fall. And he has started the process, even in Genesis 3, immediately after man sinned. So there is a resolution, and there's an ultimate resolution that we still await in the future. So that's what we dealt with last week. And we finished up by looking at this major problem, the problem of evil, which from the atheistic, at least, and sometimes even not so atheistic, but the unbelieving worldview, this is a major problem. How do you explain the existence of evil from a biblical perspective? So I gave you a little introduction, and one of the things we said is evil is the centerpiece of the atheist's argument against God, against either the existence of God or the character and nature of God. And that led into the problem, what is the actual problem of evil? So, if God is all good, if God is omnipotent, then why does evil exist? And you can't deny, even though... Christian science denies, and to some extent, even the New Age denies the existence of evil. But they are a very small minority. Most people would acknowledge that evil exists. And it exists at a very intense level, such that there are holocausts, there are massacres, there are beheadings, those kinds of things. So evil exists, therefore, the conclusion of the atheist, God does not exist. Either that, or he's not all good, because he permits it, or he's not omnipotent, or both, that he does not exist, and he's not all good, and he's not omnipotent, all three. And you could even add to that, either that or he doesn't care. He's apathetic, and lets evil do all of its damage. So that's the problem. So what we want to do is resolve that problem, and... I didn't give you a lot of resolutions here, mainly for the sake of time, but theologians, philosophers, there's a lot that's been written concerning explanations and trying to resolve that problem of evil. But I think the best thing is to look at what does the Bible do in terms of evil. So we began last time, and I'd like to conclude that, on uh, the biblical worldview concerning evil or the biblical answer to this idea of evil. So I gave you a list, and in giving a resolution to the problem of evil, there's not a scripture that gives you kind of a succinct explanation. In fact, there's hardly an explanation at all. You have to kind of build a case. And what I've done is given you a series of nine things. We stopped at number eight last time. We didn't quite finish. But you build this case, and these are all biblical concepts, and together, it gives you an answer, a biblical answer to the problem of evil. And I think there is one. There's some theologians that says that the Bible doesn't answer it at all. And I don't quite agree with that. I think there is a biblical answer. It's not simple, and it's not succinct, but if you build a case step by step, then together it gives you an answer. And that's what I want to present as we complete this portion. The starting point, God always, and he's the creator of all, and if God is the creator of all, then he is sovereign over all, or has control over all, and that includes evil. God is sovereign over evil. So, God being sovereign, and the creator of all in the universe, both in the material universe, and the universe outside of the material realm, in the spiritual realm, because there's evil that exists there as well. And if God is sovereign, then all evil is at least permitted by God. God at least permits it. He's not the author of it, but has permitted it, and allowed it in order to use it, and we'll get to this point towards the end, in order that it would ultimately glorify him as everything that he has created ultimately will. So number one, God is the creator of all, and he is sovereign over all. Number two, God created moral agents with will or volition. We call that volition. So God created moral agents. He did not want to create robots. He wanted to create people that would respond to him freely with the capacity to be able to even reject him. And that's what a moral agent is all about. Thirdly, moral agents choose evil. Thus, we have the fall of man in Genesis 3. And we also looked at the fact that spiritual creatures also made a choice for evil. Spiritual moral agents outside of the created realm, we call them angels and demons, or at least demons. Fourthly, all of the natural realm is affected. Fifthly, God is not the author of evil, and this is very, very important because this is where the atheist attacks God, because he would say that if God created all, then God has to be the ultimate author of evil. But the Bible is extremely careful in describing God as holy, never in any place in the Bible attributing evil to God. Evil has its source in moral agents that God created that he permitted to have choices and to, in fact, rebel. So God is not the author of evil. The Bible is also equally clear. God is all-powerful. We call that omnipotent. I gave you just a handful of verses. There's literally hundreds of verses on that. God is also all-good, so we could defend the goodness of God as a perfection. And he is absolutely good. And eighth, we said God is a designer of everything that he has created. He has a design behind the creation. And if he is a designer of the universe, then we can conclude that there must be a design or a plan that God has in terms of evil. So there are purposes for all things, and the purposes that God has would also include evil. Does that make sense? And that's where we left off last time. So what I'd like to do is give some passages that seem to indicate that God has a design and uses evil like he uses everything to ultimately bring glory to himself. So evil ultimately will bring glory to God. So let's look up some passages And we want to read them. First of all, let's look up, probably need to kind of lay a foundation of the glory of God. What is meant by the glory of God? So let's start with that one. Loretta, you want to look up Exodus 33. And Mackenzie, you want to do Proverbs 16 and John 9. Mark, you want to do John 11 and Romans 3 and Romans 9 you got Romans 9. Loretta, you want to go ahead and uh, read Exodus, beginning in verse 18 through 20. Exodus 33, 18 through 20. I think what we have here is something of an explanation concerning what it means when the Bible refers to the glory of God. What is the glory of God? And this isn't the only passage, but it's one of the clearest ones in all Scripture. So begin in verse 18.
1: Then Moses said, I pray you show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you in the name of the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, I cannot see my face for no man can see me live.
0: Okay. Now skip to chapter 34 because it's going to continue there. The thing I want you to notice here, Moses asks God specifically to show him his glory. That's verse 18 there. And God is going to oblige him, and he even begins by explaining what is the glory of God. What does the next verse indicate that is part of the glory of God? All my goodness there will pass before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion, but you can't see me directly. I'm going to display who I am by displaying attributes or perfections. Now in chapter 34, notice what it says, read six. Here's kind of the answer to Moses' prayer. You want to read that one, Lord? Thirty-four, six.
1: Then the Lord passed by and from the hand proclaimed, the Lord the Lord, God, compassionate and gracious. Slow to
0: anger and value, loving kindness and truth. Okay. So he's showing his glory by displaying attributes or perfections. See that? He's displaying compassion. He's displaying grace. He's displaying slow to anger. So there's anger. There's loving kindness. There's truth. Read verse 7. Who
1: keeps loving
0: kindness for thousands for gifts
1: So he's a forgiver transgressions
0: and sins. Yeah, he's forgiver of iniquity, transgressions and sins. Keep reading. He will
1: by no means be the guilty of punishment.
0: So he judges, his judgment, he punishes. Okay, that's the glory of God. This is what Moses prays. God obliges him. So I like to look at when we speak of the glory of God, God in some way displaying something of who he is, particularly maybe through attributes or maybe through something that he does. So the glory of God is kind of the composite way that God displays himself, and he displays himself in a variety of ways. So when we speak of the glory of God, think of it more as a composite of who God is. Yeah, I'm just trying to define what we mean by the glory of God and what it means to display the glory of God, because we're going to look at passages related to that and related to evil. And... Mackenzie, Proverbs 16, 4. Notice this one. for okay. the Okay, pretty clear. God has made everything for its own purpose. In other words, everything has a design in the universe. Everything has a purpose. And the last part of the verse, even evil. Or in this case, it says even the wicked. So there's a purpose. So that's kind of the foundation that we want to think in terms of. These other passages that we're going to look at kind of illustrate, in some individual cases, how that purpose is worked out on an individual basis. So, you want to look at John nine, start verse one, and read at least through verse five.
1: As he passed by, he saw... now this is Jesus. He saw one hand of her, and his disciples asked, Rabbi, who sent this man or his parents that he?
0: Okay, they ask the question, and this is our natural inclination. We think evil, we think tragedy is a result of sin, and ultimately it is, and in some cases it is, but not in every case. And here's an example that Jesus uses in order to make the point that we're making here. Keep reading. Jesus
1: answered, it was not that the sins were sins, but
0: that the works of God might be displayed. That's powerful. That, see the purpose there? In other words, God permitted this tragic situation in this blind man's life that he would use ultimately when Messiah came. And let's see what that purpose is. Keep reading. We must work
1: the works of him who sent me. while his night is coming. As long as I am in the world I am delightful. Having said these things, he sat on the ground and made better with his life. Then he anointed man's eyes with
0: Okay, so he healed him. But what was the purpose of the evil is to be able to display this power, the glory of God. So the key verse there, so that the works of God might be displayed in him, and then he goes on and uh, displays the glory of God. And everyone rejoiced on that occasion, if you keep reading, and God used that whole situation. This is just an individual example of what God can do to display his glory through an evil circumstance. Similarly with, with Lazarus, and if you know the context, Lazarus was sick. Lazarus's uh, sisters, Mary and Martha, called for Jesus to come. And there, the assumption of the passage is that Jesus could, have, could heal Lazarus if he'd come soon enough. Lazarus dies. And, in fact, Mary and Martha somewhat rebuked Jesus, telling him, if you'd gotten here sooner, you know, he wouldn't have died, because you would have done something about it. But Jesus deliberately delayed, allowed death, the ultimate end product of evil. He allowed it in order for this stance to take place. Mark, uh, you got, read 4, and then skip to verse 6.
1: But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God,
0: so that the Son of God may glorify Almighty. That's the purpose. See that? So there's a design behind it. And what is it? It's that the glory of God be displayed. So Jesus deliberately allowed Lazarus to die, because in this circumstance, he's going to bring Lazarus back to, to life, and he's going to claim to be the resurrection. Read verse 6.
1: So when he heard that
0: he was sick, he didn't stay two days longer in the place where he was. Two days longer to make sure he died. Skip to verse 11. This he said, and
1: after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him. Up.
0: And then 14 and 15. So Jesus then said to them,
1: Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe.
0: And then he goes and you know the rest of the story. But notice the little notes of deliberate delay ultimately for the purpose that God be glorified. See that? So the glory of God is displayed in Lazarus. Let's look at another one. Notice who's got, kind of you got Romans 3, read 3 and at least through verse 5 and I'll probably Romans
1: 3.
0: Okay. But notice verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, so even the evil of the unbeliever demonstrates the righteousness of God in that God saves and brings people into a righteous relationship. And every salvation is a demonstration of the glory of God. Every salvation experience, bringing an unbeliever to faith, God displaying his glory. Example there. Now, Romans 9 is real powerful. And Linda, you've got, there's several there. In fact, uh, Loretta, do you want to look up Exodus 4.21? Romans 9, 17 and 18. Now, the context of this, Paul is relaying the situation of the nation of Israel in Egypt under the Pharaoh before the Exodus. And the Pharaoh, remember, God brought ten plagues. That's the incident that is in view here. So read 17 and
1: 18.
0: Notice the whole earth. We're going to stress that when we talk about the Exodus. What happened at the Exodus is God displayed his glory through a rebellious, hardened-heart Pharaoh that refused to let the children of Israel go, and God used ten plagues to bring all that about. And it says for this very purpose, he raised him up. So he uses evil to ultimately display his glory. That's the point I'm making here. You see that? Did you read verse 18? He hardens Pharaoh. And in the text, the text tells us that Pharaoh hardened his heart, but it also tells us that God hardened his heart. And Paul is bringing that out. And the whole world heard, and there's little bits and pieces in the Old Testament that tell us that that had a dramatic effect on all of the inhabitants at that time. Now, you got Exodus 4.21, Loretta?
1: The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you will all
0: the wonders which I have put in your that I will harden his heart so that he will not rebel." Okay, there's the Old Testament text, part of the text that Paul is using in Romans. God using evil to bring glory to himself. Now read verse 19, Linda.
1: You will thank me then, why is this a so fault?
0: In other words, if God is hardening, if God is doing all this, how can you blame Pharaoh? 20.
1: Keep reading. you, Does what is boldly say to the right
0: people that the prophet all writes the same way on this? what is God willing to demonstrate? Okay, the whole point there is that God used Pharaoh... An evil, rebellious man, and it even seems that God is even involved in part of the process of hardening him. The text makes that real clear, both in the Book of Exodus and Paul brings that out in Romans chapter nine. Read uh, Romans nine twenty two as well.
1: Yeah. Since you were here, but what if God? Oh, that's <laughs> what we just. What if God going to demonstrate His third patience?
0: And what if the glory of the Okay. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory. That's the whole point. Upon vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. In other words, in the plan, and as you say, every aspect of history has a place. And we have this one with an explanation. Mackenzie, do you want to look at Job? And you want to do uh Holland Romans five eight Mark? You want to do First Corinthians four nine Connie Ephesians three Linda First Corinthians eleven You got Job Job one read six through twelve. Now there
1: was a day when the house looking worship state of the Lord and to from walking up and down, consider you and Then Satan answered the Lord. I do not put a You will bless the work of his hand. But stretch out your hand to your faith. Before it already okay. has anything
0: against him the whole point, and that's kind of the central passage of chapter one, chapter two has a similar passage. Whole point of that is that Satan can only put out evil that God permits. It's all within the permissive will of God. And the whole story of Job, Job never really gets an answer as to what God is doing. Job didn't know about chapters 1 and 2. We're given those two chapters as an explanation concerning what God is doing. So everything that Job is experiencing, the, the horrendous evil that was placed upon him, what it did is at the end of the book, what does Job do? He just praises God. He just gives glory God. So all of that had the design and the purpose in the life of Job that he would glorify God. It wasn't because of sin. In fact, you can read verse one, makes it clear, and there's other verses as well. Notice uh five eight. Okay, Romans five eight, Colin.
1: But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners,
0: Christ died in us. Okay. He demonstrates his love towards sinners in reversing the effects of sin, and in fact, even the presence of sin. So there's a verse that you can add. Angels are observing, and God is displaying his glory to angels. Let's take an early break to the flood.